This is Republic of INSEAD, the 20 years later O3D podcast edition. I am Milena Ivanova and will be your host in this limited series. So, here we are, 20 years later, hopefully all the wiser, naturally smarter and as charming as ever. There were 432 of us in the O3D vintage. And certainly, there are 432 unique and very interesting personal and professional stories to tell. While I cannot physically cover all, I have tried to make a selection of stories that will keep you interested and curious and will hopefully convince you to join us on campus for reunion. Welcome to the Republic of INSEAD podcast edition and enjoy the show. Here we are. Hello again. Let's see how many of you know who my guest today is from just hearing his 20-year-old entry in the Republic of Insiat. I open quotations. He had a hard time during the first two periods, not because of the workload, but because of his seat allocation. Being the tallest guy in our section, assigned a seat in the very front row of Amphidi, he had to crouch down during classes to make sure that he neither blocks the view of others sitting behind him, nor hit the professor with his long legs. This Phil Serquois from Amsterdam, once a varsity field hockey gatekeeper with a telephone background, is an arm-hearted team builder who can put things into perspective. Throughout the year, we witnessed his multiple talents from Mark Strat. He was basically the only one in our group able to run the software, serious beer drinking, and to even occasionally modeling. Check, check page five of the MBA program 2004 brochure. Here is a guy who managed to explore the full spectrum of INSEAD life. Hey, so front row, huh? I had a front row seat and loved it actually, but then again, I did not have your problems with long legs and all that. So where do you sit these days? You have a proper seat. I, I, I try to have a proper seat. And the, uh, the good thing is I'm no longer the tallest in my house anymore. Oh. My, son, uh, my son overtook me a year ago, which was a cheerful moment at the first time. And then he figured out that uh, he will have soon the same problem that I had in MVD, which I had already forgotten about. But uh, he's dealing with it. So how tall are you and how tall is your son? Uh, I think I'm 196 and my son, I think, uh, has exceeded two meters. By oh, gosh. There I you hope go. he stops growing. Well, there you go. <laughs> okay. And so welcome to the podcast, Mr. Man. Mm, if I may, one more observation. First, I learned a new word today, Vilserfois. For anyone who's not an INSEAD alumni, you'd have no clue, but that's nope. a, an amazing village, or was it a community? It was a bunch of houses, they'll serve. And yep. amazingly for me, so you tell me what's the secret, because I've ended up talking to a lot of people from Vilserf in the podcast, and a lot of Vilserf people have ended up doing crazy, interesting things. So <laughs> I don't know what they did to you there, or was it the community and the inspiration, but there you go. So other than that, where do we begin? Should we start with the last 20 years in a nutshell? Yeah. What you've been up to? You have five minutes. I'm timing it. All right. That, uh, that's going to be uh, going to be a stretch. We'll give it a try nonetheless. So the last 20 years, 
After INSEAD, I married uh, my uh, then girlfriend, now wife Nanette. Uh, she visited me a number of times during the year. And pretty soon after our marriage, we, um, we moved to the Philippines, uh, where um, so I joined a company called SHV, a large Dutch family-owned conglomerate. Uh, and going into INSEAD, I wanted to, I had two clear views in my mind. I wanted to work for a family owned or a privately held business uh, that offered me a real international career, including um, uh, stints abroad. And uh, they promised me that and they delivered big time. So we moved to the Philippines, the two of us. Our son was born there. Uh, I worked for a, a cash and carry wholesale, so a retailer um, uh, in the Philippines. Spent two years there. Then we moved to, um, to Germany which basically is going from one end of the chaos spectrum to the other end of the chaos spectrum, I would say. Um, we moved to Dresden uh, and um, well, another Vilserf um, person, Chris Larmore, told me to really not move to Dresden because uh, if you if you want to die young, <laughs> go to Dresden. <laughs> Nonetheless, we uh, we survived there. For, uh, we lived there for two years. Our, um, our second child, our daughter, was, uh, was born there. Uh, then we moved on to, um, to Prague, where we lived for three years, where our youngest was born. Uh, then on to, uh, to China, uh, where we didn't have any children. So we stuck to the, uh, we stuck to the national policy of, uh, of no more children. Um, and then, um, so altogether nine years abroad, we came back to Holland, a uh, family of five, which was probably the hardest move we ever did. Uh, going back to what you thought was home, but uh, we had changed, the country had changed. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty r rough settling in, I think, for uh, my wife and me. But having gotten through that, uh, we're super happy uh, where we are today. Kids are doing really well. Uh, my wife um, is working again, so she gave up her job uh, to uh, go into the international adventure with, with me together. Uh, so she's back at work. She really loves that. And and I'm still with SHV, so almost 20 years on. Uh, I'm in my, I think, ninth or tenth job uh, at the moment. I've worked, um, like I said, in, uh, in cash and carry retail. After that, I switched to the the energy uh, division of, uh, of SHV. It's uh, liquefied gas. Uh, worked in that business for about nine years. I've been in the board of uh, SHV. And then two years ago, I felt it was, um, yeah, for me, the right time to go back into really managing a business operationally. Um, and I now am the CEO of Nutreco, which is one of the uh, global leaders in, in animal nutrition. So we provide feed to, um, to animals that are used uh, for, uh, for human consumption predominantly. And uh, and I'm loving it to be back uh, back in the action, so to say, running a business with my own team uh, in a fascinating industry that is going through uh, turbulent times. Mm. Yeah, and you'll tell us more about this. But what would you say were the biggest challenges? And you're doing amazing on time, score points, bottle <laughs> of champagne. Uh, what were the biggest challenges or the biggest challenge of these 20 years for you? Well, so um, I think firstly, on the, on the, on the personal side, um, settling in, finding, uh, finding solid ground under your feet. So every time we moved. Uh, even like I said, <laughs> moving back to uh, back to the Netherlands, so setting up and and in all fairness, I think uh, the bulk of that was done by uh, by Nanette. Uh, I was very often uh, off to work, uh, but settling in, finding your rhythm, uh, building a network, uh, making friends, 
um, and all that while we were having um, young children with uh, with their uh, exciting challenges uh, that they, that they bring as well. Um, so I think that that, that was probably um, among the challenges. And then and then work wise, um, similarly, so, so adjusting to to a local culture. Well, from uh, from the Philippines to Germany was a major uh, a major uh, switch for me from a very hierarchical um, situation where people only look at the boss to make decisions and then everyone says yes, but in the implementation, everyone does something else. Whereas in Germany, people spend a lot of time talking about getting to a decision, but once a decision is made, typically uh, it moves. So I'm not sure whether one is a faster process than the other, but you spend time at different ends of the uh, of the process. Very different, yeah. Um, and a place like China, I mean, it was a fascinating experience. I really look back with it uh, at it with with a lot of uh, fun, but also super complex. I mean, you don't speak the language. I didn't read the language. Uh, you're asked to sign documents where you have basically no idea what the document really says. Um, so um, yeah, th th those were I think. Yeah, my key challenges during the way. Well, yeah, that's scary. So how do you deal with that? You really, really have to trust the person who's interpreting your legal counsel. Or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I mean, on that specifically, we, we had a process. So it was a six-eye process for things that I needed mm. to sign. So we had uh, two people uh, looking at the, uh, making sure that the translation was indeed what the uh, the original text said. Uh, but yeah, in, indeed, in in communicating and working with the, with people who did not speak English, uh, with me not speaking Mandarin, uh, I, I was very dependent and had to rely on and trust indeed people who helped me um, help me uh, translate. But I've I've bumped my head a few times, uh, but for the most of it, um, I was lucky to have extremely good and uh, trustworthy people around. Yeah. So you said you consciously went into, you wanted to be in a private company. Yeah. What was your thinking at the time? Well, I I joined, um, so I studied law. So, I mean, I, I really, I couldn't even figure out the four Ps uh, in marketing. Uh, yet I started in, in marketing in, uh, in mobile telecoms. That was my first job. In that period, uh, so be, the years before INSEAD were not many people, not as many people as today had a mobile phone, but a lot of people wanted to have one. So it was a fantastic place to be if you were in marketing, uh, with the risk of thinking you were a really good marketeer because you were selling a lot. <laughs> but it was also the time that at least the company I was working for, uh, we were so extremely short-term focused. Uh, we, we almost changed strategy every three, uh, every three months. Uh, we were literally throwing money out of the window. Uh, just to get customers market share. And somehow it didn't feel right to me. I, I, I didn't have the financial understanding to uh, to really put a calculator to it. Uh, and then the company also literally almost went bankrupt uh, at the end of the three years. Um, and so I said, you know, somehow this cannot be right. You, you can't run a business with such a short-term horizon. And so I said to myself, whatever I do next, I want to work in a place where there's a longer term uh, horizon of doing things. Um, and when I when I joined that company, it still had an international exposure. And when it almost went bankrupt, the first thing they did, rightfully so, was get rid of all the sort of positions abroad. Um, so also my international window was closed. So I was really looking for 
uh, a non-listed environment, uh, which promised me an international career. And um, yeah, like I said, SHV uh, very much did. Very interesting. You know, I was talking with Willem Brandt, who's also a guest yeah. on the show and who's Dutch. And he was telling me about Paul Polman at Unilever. Yeah. And I knew nothing about him. And then I was at INSEAD last weekend and Paul Polman was speaking to us. And then at some point he says, uh, when I came to Unilever, I abolished the quarterly reporting, yeah. which to me was like, I used to be an equity analyst. I used to cover public equities. And I'm like, this takes beyond balls to for a public company and for yeah, a yeah. public company to actually abolish quarterly reporting. But it Absolutely. makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. Even even half year is, you know, like, as you say, things change. And in any case, so I totally get it. And this is interesting because we'll talk later about sustainability and all that. But in terms of business as a force for good or business that moves the needle on bigger problems than just the quarterly results, it resonates very much. So Absolutely. Yeah, there you go. So... So to go into the industries, and here you mentioned animal nutrition is your current one. Yeah. But we, I also touch on fossil fuels. Yeah. I made both of them. Sure. Because you've been in both, and we also have an INSEAD connection in the fossil fuels, an INSEAD story. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's start, I mean, pick one of them and let's start with it and where it's been, where it's going in whichever order. But these are the two, animal nutrition, fossil fuels. And yeah. of course, sustainability in both yeah. of these. Uh, well, then, then I'll, I'll start in, uh, in fossil fuels, which, uh, which is the industry I've spent most of my career uh, in. Um, of the, the, about, about 11 years. Um, so like I said, I, I worked for uh, SHV Energy. They provide, they're one of the largest uh, companies in the world uh, in um, uh, liquefied petroleum gas, uh, which is an, it's an, uh, a byproduct of oil refining and of uh, gas exploration. And it's typically used for off grid uh, to provide energy to, uh, to people and companies that are off the, uh, the natural gas grid. So you will not see typically in large uh, cities, particularly not in, in Western countries, but in the countryside, whether that is in France or in, in UK or in, uh, or in the US, uh, people would typically have a tank outside of their home and they would use it to provide um, energy to heat their homes uh, for cooking, uh, etc. And so that is, uh, it's a fossil fuel, uh, but for those areas, it's often the most sustainable or, the, or I would say the least polluting fuel available because the, mm -hmm. the alternative is very often heating oil. Yeah. Obviously for electric power, uh, solar is increasingly uh, an alternative, but to heat homes in those places, um, very often electricity will not, uh, will not cut. Um, and so we, uh, I've worked in that business for a long time. I was CEO for three years of the group and we really started to, uh, to drive I would say a, a twofold uh, course to towards sustainability. One, um, we set the goal to become a fully uh, sustainable, so a fully renewable provider of LPG. So we we were the first to launch a, a fully renewable version of LPG. So chemically the same atoms, but produced from uh, from food waste uh, and other parts. 
and, and, and the second leg is to provide other sources of energy like, uh, like solar energy to our clients. Um, and so a, a, an industry which was already in transition, and I think energy transition is probably one of the two or three large transitions that, the, um, that we are going through and that we will have to go through. And so I've, yeah, I've, I've had my fair share of uh, also industry conferences where there, there's on the one hand a group of companies that really wants to change. There's, um, there's also a group of companies that are either in denial or that they cling on to vested interest or they see no need or they see no opportunity. Um, and so that brings tension, but I think it also brings, uh, it can bring a lot of creativity yes. uh, to look for ways to, um, to provide people with energy in a much more sustainable, uh, sustainable way. Yeah. Um, so that, that has been uh, yeah, a fascinating time to be in there. And at some point, you actually gave the idea to Chris Larmour, who you already mentioned. Yeah. There you go. The Vilserf connection. Gosh, yeah. you know, crazy. So the, the fuel they chose for the rocket at Orbex is a fuel that you suggested. Yeah. My understanding. Yeah. What's the story? Yeah. Yeah, from your well, side, I know it from Chris's and people that heard it by now. Yeah, so. Well, let's see if see if the stories uh, match up. Exactly. Uh, but, but so so Chris and I, we were roommates in Vilserf, and um, he introduced me into the concept of a spud gun, which was sort of a plastic <laughs> tube, uh, and you in which you injected some uh, deodorant spray, and then with a spark plug, uh, you would put a spud a potato in there, and you could actually <laughs> launch it for about. I don't know, 50 to 100 meters. So our objective was to, we were in Upperville Surf and we wanted to shoot it to Lowerville Surf across the road. Uh, and we actually were quite successful. It became increasingly dangerous when we started using golf balls. And I'll, I'll leave away the story about the pyrotechnics, which was more my specialty. But uh, so we started with a spud gun. And then later on, I remember coming home one day from school and then Chris was outside with... Um, it wasn't a blowtorch, I don't know what the name is, but he was trying to really build a rocket. So his ambitions clearly were far beyond the spuds at that time. Um, and so, I don't know, we, we, we were in contact a number of years ago and we were talking about what he was doing now and, and he was built, working on Orbex. And so initially I couldn't stop laughing, thinking back of, to the spud gun and, and him with his rocket attempt uh, uh, outside our house. Uh, and we were talking about the fuel and it said it needs to be light. And they were already thinking about LPG, uh, that it would be, uh, apparently, I'd, I'd never thought of uh, this um, before, but apparently it brings a lot of benefits in weight if you uh, build yeah. a rocket that you use LPG. And I said to him at that point in time, you know, we are about to launch the first uh, totally renewable LPG in the world. Uh, and then, yeah, very quickly you add one and one. You said, wouldn't it be fantastic if you built a light rocket that is also the only sort of sustainable rocket in the world? Because I think all the other rocket fuel typically is fossil. And um, and for me, it was at that time also a really nice way to give some extra media attention to what we were doing in a in an area which is totally outside of anyone's expectation. Because typically this is used, like I said, for cooking and heating at home and not for a, for a rocket. So um, it gave, uh, I think, Chris uh, uh, and Orbex a good opportunity to find um, a differentiating angle to what they were doing. Uh, and it gave us a really nice opportunity also to put some media attention on, on what we were doing. 
Um, so uh, really, really cool that that worked out. So you never, you never know where a spot gun leads to. Well, there you go. And it's another reason why it just makes me think now, this is why in-person education cannot be replicated in another form because no. were you not in the same house sharing right this is like it's Ooh. crazy but all the implications that this has it's i love these stories but yeah. yeah so okay and then animal nutrition which is of course well farming uh is a major pollutant right a major problem in terms of arable land and in terms of just sustainability so where do you come into that with yeah. the business you run now? so the, the the purpose of our company is um, is feeding the future and that is really something that drives uh, me and and, and the eleven thousand people working uh, in our company to to make sure we have solutions to provide the population that is and will grow to um, uh, to 10 billion um, in a way that that doesn't totally destroy the uh, the planet we live in, and uh, so indeed agriculture is responsible, depending a little bit on how you measure it, for about twenty five percent of all uh, emissions in the world. That has to do with uh, emissions of um, of farming and the animals within it. It has to do with emissions on the uh, on the side of the, the raw materials, so deforestation. There's a biodiversity challenge. Um, so th- there's a lot of negative uh, impact that this have and uh, has, and at the same time, uh, we need we need nutritious uh, food, uh, affordable food for uh, for people across the world, and we are I think one of the links in the whole food system that can uh, provide part of the solution. And we cannot provide the whole solution, but uh, by uh, coming up with with new and innovative ingredients. Uh, that uh, drive more efficient ways of producing uh, meat or fish by coming up with ingredients that reduce the negative externalities by working with suppliers on finding new ingredients and more sustainable ingredients. I mean, that is really what uh, where we spend a lot of R&D uh, on to, uh, to work on those kind of uh, solutions. Um, and also here, like in the fossil fuel industry, uh, that I was in, I see very similar behavior. So you see the uh, the evangelists that really uh, look for ways to do things differently, and you see uh, vested interests, and you also see that the system that we have today is so super efficient that for any new technology, it is really challenging at the start to um, to beat those economies of scale. Mm. Yeah, but but then then again, if you look at where solar is today and where solar was a few decades ago, uh, it will it will happen. Yeah. Um, and so we really try to be um, at the forefront of things. Not only uh, it's similar to what what we tried to do when I was in the in the LPG business. So we're trying to really work on uh, creating more sustainable solutions for current farming practices. And at the same time, we are investing, uh, and there I dare to say we're at the forefront of our industry. We're investing also in um, in creating uh, feed for um, uh, lab-grown meat, yeah, so for uh, cultured meat, which is an industry where there's a lot of investment going on. There's actually this week two companies got approval in the U.S. for their um, uh, cultured meat products to also be sold to uh, to humans. And that is an industry that in the next five to 10 years will start to grow. And I think once it starts growing, it will grow exponentially. I don't think it will ever wipe away traditional 
farming. Uh, but it is a fantastic add-on solution with a lot of benefits compared to the way we uh, we farm today. Uh, animal welfare benefits, but also uh, on the um, uh, emissions and, and use of water. Uh, there's yeah. huge benefits there. Yeah. But so if we go to lab-produced meat, where yeah. in the chain is your business then? What do you provide to this? So, so where we now provide nutrition to animals, we would then provide nutrition to cells. And so we uh, we are we have invested in uh, in two uh, two companies. One is um, uh, producing uh, lab-grown burgers called Mosa Meat. Another company is called Blue Nalu. They're trying to do. They are doing the same for tuna. So they're they're really aiming for sort of the sashimi type. Um, and these cells, they need to eat. Uh, and so we provide w- what we know about feeding an animal is um, pretty useful um, to feed a cell. Uh, and so we are working with them. So we invest in them with the objective to build a, an R&D collaboration. And so we have our people working with their people on, uh, on testing, experimenting, creating the right uh, feed for cells. And this is a critical component for this industry to become cost competitive. Today, they use ingredients coming out of the pharma industry, um, which are a factor 80 to 200 too expensive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is what we're trying to um, trying to crack. And does it require a different type of scientist in your R&D department or? Uh, so for now, it, it, uh, we've started using the people we have, and we've we've come quite a long way. We're not, we are now looking into attracting a few people that have more pharma backgrounds, who have just more experience in running what we call growth media uh, um, uh, development, which is a new area for us. Um, and if we com- can combine that with the knowledge that we have of, um, of feeding animals, uh, I think we could have um, something very valuable. Mm. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, all right, that's food. Are you still eating steak? Or I am. <laughs> Not as much as I was, though. But that's that's more on my wife, I think. Uh, there you go. All right. So if we can switch gears and go to the INSEAD connection, well, we've talked quite a bit about INSEAD already, but um, or the connections. But yeah. other than Chris Lermore being your uh, housemate, what other ways has INSEAD been part of your journey? People working for you or with you, friendships, etc., etc. So I'm um, in all honesty, I've. I've lost touch quite a bit with with the inset community after leaving uh, the Netherlands. In countries where I worked, uh, I've connected to local inset networks uh, every now and then. Um, having come back, uh, it was I think last year, two years ago, we had sort of a, a reunion of um, of the Dutch uh, people from our class. It also shows that we've become old because it became a uh, walk the dog club. So. Uh, Things have changed 20 years onwards, uh, but so in honesty, I, I've lost touch a little bit um, uh, with with most of the the people there. I've met a few people once or twice, but not so much anymore. Well, but it hasn't prevented you from giving back, right? No, absolutely. So, so if you can talk about this, so you're a bronze salamander, which means giving at the 15k plus level over the last uh, 20 years and in fact you've given 13 of the last 20 years which me 
we only have one person who's given 16 of those okay. 20 and a couple of 14. So you are up there, up there. So it's consistency as well and discipline. I don't know if that's the German or the Chinese. <laughs> but how do you think about giving back? So in well, general and in SEAD in particular? No, so in general, I've, I've, I've always learned life is about learning, earning, returning. Um, and I think in the past, it was also sort of in that sequence. Um, I, I, I don't, I, well, I didn't want to sort of wait uh, with returning uh, until I stopped earning. Uh, I think um, me and my family were in a, we're in a fortunate situation to, to we're able to do the things we uh, we like. And there's a lot of people um, that can use a bit of support here or there. So th there's several things I do um, in, in, in the um, in the bucket returning and INSEAD is one of them. I mean, INSEAD for me has been I mean, firstly, it was an amazing year to to be together with such a great energy. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever had seen the energy, the positive energy around me that, that was there during that year. People were so motivated. Uh, people were in for fun. People were in for serious things, creative ideas, uh, the international dynamics. But it also really helped me make a jump in my career. I mean, I'm, I'm honestly convinced that I wouldn't be where I am today without INSEAD. Um, uh, even though the, the Florida University accounting professor uh, <laughs> mishap uh, along the way, I, I, I still think I'm pretty good at understanding a balance sheet today, and, and I wouldn't have been without uh, without Incian. So um, I, I started giving, I wasn't aware that it was 13 out of 20 years, but I started giving uh, quite regularly, and uh, and during COVID, I upped my commitment. Uh, I got a call. Um, in the early days when everyone was trying to save the world. Uh, uh, so that, I think they also hit me in an emotional moment. Mm. I was very easily on board then. But yeah, like I said, I, I, I truly believe that business can be a force for good. And I think we need business to be a force for good. And so if our endowment can help people from, um, from backgrounds that, that cannot afford the, to go and do a year like this themselves, then um, I think that is a fantastic way of um, helping others, but also of, of creating a return for the uh, for the world, basically. Now, in a way, we are reinvesting in our own equity, right? And yeah. In Seattle, good, we good. <laughs> that kind yeah, of, yeah. if one wants to be selfish, but obviously, uh, the big story, the greatest stories is uh, amazing within Seattle. And uh, thank you for that. And thank you for the generosity. <laughs> Makes my life easier. <laughs> right. Last bit, which is the quick round of questions. If you are ready, we start. Yeah. So your proudest achievement? Uh, establishing and raising a family together with uh, Nanette uh, in, uh, in in so many different countries and um, still being married happily with her and uh, with the kids. Nice. For sure. Success for you is? Success for me is... Winning with the team uh, in balance with uh, with a good and uh, good situation at home, and, Happiness, spend, mm -hmm. and spending a bit of time uh, on on my own hobbies every now and then. <laughs> happiness is um, yeah. So happiness is really being together with uh, my friends or family and, and and spending a bit of time uh, kite surfing uh, here on the North Sea, uh, just five minutes from my house. Biggest regret. Biggest regret is. I think I don't have many, but I think my biggest regret is that while we were abroad, 
I did not always see how tough this was for my wife. And I, uh, in hindsight, I should have yeah, supported her in a different way than, uh, than I was doing at that time. What keeps you awake at night or you sleep well? Oh, yeah, uh, th- there's very little that keeps me awake at night. No, I'm a, I'm a very good sleeper. Excellent. Wish you had known or someone had told you. Whew. Um, um, that is a difficult one. Yeah, well, maybe some things about uh, getting started in China. I, I, I wish I would have known a little bit more about what it takes to really um, blend, well, not blend in, but to really connect with uh, with the local culture. I figured it out eventually, but... Um, How long did it used, take you? I think it took me, but I, I resisted some of the stuff for six to nine months. I said, this cannot be real. And then uh, it turned out to be real. And there was there was actually quite some alcohol involved in that. Um, but once you, you you break through, then I really loved working with uh, with the Chinese people. If you had to do it all over again, what would you change? Well, other than what I just said about uh, being there in a different way for uh, for Nanette, uh, not much. I've enjoyed the ride. Retirement ever, never. Uh, well, yes, probably. There, there will come a time when I, when I will retire from, let's say, executive life. I'm not someone to sit still too much. So I'll, I'll keep busy. Uh, when that is, I have no clue. If you had to pick one book everyone should read, which one would it be? Yeah, I would say The Storyteller by Pierre Gerawan. He's a German from Lebanese origin. So okay. fantastic uh, one of the few books that really, really hit me uh, emotionally. Mm. Most admired public person. I thought about this one. Uh, I wouldn't pick a person. I would pick a team, uh, which is the uh, the New Zealand All Blacks, okay. the rugby team. Uh, even with my two miserable appearances in the INSEAD rugby team, uh, I've become a big fan of watching the sport. I know very well I shouldn't participate in it. <laughs> but um, I find it amazing that they, for for decades, are at the top of the game globally. They managed to reinvent themselves. They're based on very strong values, uh, teamwork, uh, humility. Yeah, and it's just, I, I haven't seen it anywhere else. It's not really money-driven like some of the football, but this is such a strong performance that, yeah, if you can replicate this in business, you have a very strong winning um, combination. I picked out the humility in this thing you are saying, yeah. so, which is a rare um, quality and rare and successful Absolutely. Uh, people. So. Most despised public person, if you have one. Uh, I would say anyone in a position with influence that abuses it. And uh, unfortunately, I think the last years in politics, uh, we see people um, increasingly that, uh, that are just too much in it for themselves yeah. and not for uh, the people who either elected them or who, who not managed to elect them out. Yeah. And the last one, are you coming to reunion? Yes, I booked my, um, I managed to, I hope everyone has booked a room because it was pretty difficult to find rooms. Uh, yeah. But uh, no, I'm definitely um, intent on coming. Super. So that's it. Uh, October 6, 2023 in Fontainebleau. And the gala dinner is at the Chateau next day, Saturday. So people get your party shoes on and this was a conversation for whoever didn't figure it out with Fulco van Lede CEO of Nutreco thank you very much for your time Fulco and very happy I'll see you in Ponte in October
Thank you, Milena, and thank you so much for organizing all of this. Um, I, I, I hope it gets everyone really excited to, uh, to go to the reunion. I hope so, too. Thank you. All right. You were listening to the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition. It is my hope to remind everyone what an interesting and, dare I say, colorful bunch of people we are and how much we can contribute to each other, be it through ideas, knowledge or mere inspiration. The podcast is inspired by the original Republic of INSEAD yearbook, produced on paper 20 years ago by Oliver Bradley and team. Thank you, Oli and team, for this contribution to our class's memory and for letting me continue in the tradition, title and inspiration included. Creator and author of the Republic of INSEAD 20 Years Later O3D Podcast Edition am I, Milena Ivanova. Original music by Peter Dundakov with help from Dare Films Productions. Stay tuned for more and remember to book your tickets for the 20-year reunion in Fontainebleau, October 6th, 8th, 2023. Thank you for listening.